What is up, podcast listeners? Thank you for giving me a few moments of your day to listen to this podcast. This is the Matt Baxter Show. I'm your host, Matt Baxter, and this podcast is about purpose, passion, and calling. Super stoked to have you as a listener because we're going to dive into some awesome, intense stories about people who are going through this journey of this thing called life, and we're all just figuring this out together. But seriously, you're giving me a little bit of your time, and I want to make sure it's valuable and worthwhile. So have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was getting this podcast off the ground, we first started as the Wedgecast, evolved into the Matt Baxter Show. There was a lot of questions that we had, like, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show in all the different places like Spotify, Apple Music, Anchor, Zencaster, all these different places. And yet it just seemed very, very complicated. But the simple thing for us as we began to navigate the waters is the answer to every single one of these questions, questions excuse me, was really simple. It's Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free. Yeah, free. And it's ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise in your podcast. That means you can get paid podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, making money. Okay, it's sweet. It's easy. It's not a big cheap plug on an ad, but it's just simple and easy to use. So for us, it's one of the best parts about it is we can do it entirely remote or in studio. So you can record, you've got that really, really high, you know, high in the sky person that you're going to have as a guest on your podcast. You got to do it remote. Anchor is easy to use. You got people who are willing to come to your studio, your house, your office, wherever you're recording it. Boom. Anchor. Love it. Simple, easy, simple and easy to use. So if you ever want to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Join me in the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. Can't wait to hear your podcast. What's up, podcast listeners? This is Matt Baxter here again on the Matt Baxter Show, and I'm hanging out with a remarkably interesting human being named Tom Goodwin. Basically, Tom is kind of the guy that when any public news comes out about anything, I go to his LinkedIn because he's usually one of the first skeptics about the information, what's become popular. Sometimes he's maybe errs on the side of a little offensive, but really what he's doing is he's asking the right questions that people are too afraid to ask. So I will admit, I have asked Tom to be a guest in this podcast, I think for the last three years, two and a half years before I even had a podcast, I asked him to be on one just because I wanted to ask him a lot of questions and dive into it. And of course, with a little bit of persistency, he finally said yes. And I feel like I gained a friend after, after this episode. So Tom, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Thank you for just the very sort of odd approach to life and asking questions that you have that I think more people need to be like. So thank you so much. And I really, really hope and enjoyed this episode. And I hope that the listeners enjoyed it just as much as I did as well. Tom, thank you for being a guest on this podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun. It should be. Thanks for having me on. So your LinkedIn title is Head of Futures. Can For dummies like me, what does that actually mean? Uh, it means that no one really knows what to do with me. Um, I mean, in short, uh, the world is going through a lot of change. Uh, and I try and make sense of it. And I try and understand what is changing and what's not changing, what the implications of that are, um, and what companies should do about it. So I work for a massive uh, sort of French holding company with all sorts of different types of advertising agencies and business transformation agencies around the world. Uh, and I kind of act, I mean, I don't like things like thought leadership. I think that's a sort of terrible term. 
Um, but I try and spend more time thinking and wandering and the other type of wandering. Um, and I try and sort of provide meaningful inspiration and information for our clients as they're looking to make decisions about the changing world. That was very vague, wasn't it? Oh, it's perfect. Yeah, crystal clear. I feel like I'm going to hire you for a consulting gig and you're never going to be wrong, right? <laughs> so, so, yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, are you a like professional optimist or professional skeptic, like skepticist? What's the, are, do you, do you view the world of, Hey, this is the positive direction of the way things are going and this is the negative way and we need to change. I think I don't have a, a sort of natural place that I come from, but I am aware that the world has overwhelming amounts of data to suggest that things are rather wonderful in almost all directions. And when you record this in sort of June of 2020, um, you probably think I've been asleep for a while or I haven't been watching the news or something. But, you know, without going all sort of hand snook about it, um, the reality is that virtually all aspects of the world are getting better in all directions. And I think the media tends to focus on the negative things. And that doesn't mean that life is fair. That doesn't mean there isn't huge amounts of work to be done. But I think we we should be more pleased than we routinely are about some of the wonderful things that we're creating as a species. Now, I'm not an incredible sort of optimist. I think... Um, I tend to sort of believe in humanity and believe in the human spirit and believe in ingenuity. And I believe that most people are very well intentioned and people can be trusted. But I'm also very cynical, not um, sorry, I'm also very skeptical. I'm not cynical. I'm very skeptical about the developments that are shared with me. So every press release, every new technology, um, every uh, boast which is made by new companies, I tend to take that with a huge degree of skepticism which often means that people think I'm cynical because when people say that voice interfaces will change the world, I'm often there thinking, I don't think this really is going to happen. Or when people are saying that online learning is going to mean that universities are a thing of the past, I'm there thinking actually it's a bit more uh, complicated than that. So I, I quite often come across um, less positive than I really am. I like that a lot. I listened to one of your talks and you you sort of opened up with like how fast the world's moving and how we all just need to actually like slow down and things are actually moving probably slower than we think and things are much better than we think. And that was I in that talk, it's a lot of you sort of referencing dis different pieces that actually didn't come true that people made some glamorous red headline statement about. So my question to you was, where in the world are we not moving fast enough, in your opinion? Like, because so yeah. much of the world is based around moving too quickly. And I, I'll dive into sort of some questions I have from like my business perspective. But where are we move? Where aren't we moving fast enough? I don't think it's so much a question of, of velocity. I think it's a question of deepness um, without getting too sort of philosophical. But what tends to happen is companies make very, very, very um, sort of externally facing changes that are very superficial in nature very quickly while the very core and the very sort of purpose and the very um, sort of existential elements of a company um, stay the same. Uh, I mean, two little kind of current examples, really. Like, it's it's extraordinary to me that this seems to um, be an era where working from home has suddenly exploded. Um, and yet I think about the fact that I was given my first laptop in a company um, perhaps 10 years ago. Um, so why at that point was there not the kind of explosion of working from home? So it's things like this sort of profound way that we need to rethink things around new technology that bothers me. We tend to sort of layer new technology rather like um, a kind of oil to what we do, like technology becomes a sort of lubricant to the old machinery. 
And actually, it's much more useful to think of, of technology more like oxygen, where it sort of creates new life forms and allows us to, to rethink things and to be much more imaginative, much more ambitious in what we do. So it's not the pace, it's the depth. I like that. I like that a lot. I So this question, I need to reference your book and then I'll ask, uh, ask the question. So it's going to take a second to get there. You yeah. reference Blockbuster and how Blockbuster is the, the, the poster child for big, massive company too slow to make change and then died because of it, right? So who messed up in that? So like you stop and think like we blame Blockbuster and it's so easy to look back and say, well, they should have adopted or they should have adapted and they should have moved quicker and they should have understand the, world, the way the world's changing. But ultimately, somebody had a probably rational reason, maybe to stay in the position they were or to double down in the market that they were in or the resources they were putting behind stuff. So in your opinion, not necessarily blaming an individual, but in organizations, who was it that truly screwed that whole thing up and who's screwing it up today that we're sort of missing the point? Lyman, well, I mean, that's a very big question. Um, I know, I'm trying to make it easy on you. You said wake you, wake you up, so come on, let's get after it. You're making notes as, as you ask these things. Uh, I think it's very easy to be very unfair on companies, but it's also easy to be too kind to companies. And I think um, the reality is that companies are very good at preserving themselves for, uh, for the, the kind of paradigm that they exist in. So I'm sure the people at Blockbusters were unbelievably good at running a Blockbuster. Like the people who were buying real estate, the people who were arranging contracts with Coke or Pepsi to put fridges in their stores, like the people that were doing the planograms with, with uh, movie companies. I think everyone was very good at doing the thing they had to do. And when a technology that comes along that kind of subverts everything, I think often what you have are very well-intentioned specialists who are extremely good at dealing with the current um, and just aren't even able to sort of consider something outside of that area. I mean, if you are someone who has spent a long time negotiating with um, Hagen-Dazs ice cream about how many flavors of ice cream you should have in your stores and what the, the sell-through price will be, it's very hard for you to kind of spend your evenings looking at um, broadband development. So I think often we become experts in an old world and it's actually that we know too much and we get too close to things. Um, so that doesn't mean that these companies are stupid. It almost means that they were sort of too intelligent and too focused. Uh, and it's quite easy to go around and sort of laugh at these companies like sort of Kodak that was thriving in digital um, imaging, even though it sort of didn't really go into that area or people like Nokia, who I actually was working um, very significantly for at the time when the iPhone came out. But these things are only really incredibly obvious in retrospect. So I think I think sometimes we should give these people a bit of a break. At the same time, um, there are many changes which are extremely easy to predict. And there are companies that are extremely kind of complicit and uh, far too relaxed about a changing world. And it, it's extraordinary right now that somehow uh, an environment like this moment in time, everyone's talking about the sort of rise of e-commerce as if somehow this wasn't this extremely easy to predict um, 25 year long trend, you know? So I think companies need to, to try to sort of have their, their sort of heads in two spaces, one which is in their existing sort of structure and expertise. And then another one, which is looking much further afield and looking at new developments, but doing so in a way which is full of, of scrutiny and scorn because the number of companies that are rethinking around chatbots or reimagining their businesses around um, voice, um, you know, it just goes to show how silly many of these things can be. But that, that kind of combination of the now and the future, the sort of deep and the wide, um, that's where I come in. I try to be the person that's the sort of the, the wide and the, and the next. So without discrediting your profession or 
who you are. How much time should people spend attempting to think the way you do in the midst of these companies? So for example, if you were to have stepped into Blockbuster at the time at which they were going great guns and there was no reason for them to predict that anything horrific was about to happen or disruptive was about to happen, how would you be advising them to be taking a step out and considering or thinking, you know, hey, here you're, you're so much focused on the flavors of ice cream and how much money you can make and optimizing that. But really, you should be thinking about, you know, does it make sense to offer a delivery ice cream service with your with your movie delivered as well, too? So things like that. How do you advise sort of the moonshot conceptual thinking in individual people who happen to make up a company? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, easy question, I know, right? I'm not really doing myself any favor by sort of downplaying the amazing expertise and wonderful value and unique talent that I have. Um, But realistically, I don't think it's that hard, actually. I mean, I think, um, you know, the world is out there for us to explore. Like people are out there telling us what they think about stuff. Like my role really um, is to kind of sit on a bus in a third tier Chinese city and just look around and look at what people are doing. Um, it's to be on, uh, I don't know, in a sort of farm shop in rural um, England. It's to listen to conversations that people are having in call centers when you walk around them. It's just to sort of absorb everything really and to, to use a significant amount of empathy to try and understand people and their motivations and their behaviors and how things change. And then probably what's a little bit more technically complex is I have to um, try to understand this technology and the technical limitations of it. So if you really become an expert in 5G, you know, you are, you are able to see some of the things that will be possible through it, but you're also able to see some of the claims that are made by it, which are complete nonsense as well. Um, so it's a mixture of sort of human and technology. It's a mixture of thinking and imagination and empathy. Um, and then there's also a kind of focus on business and business models and how companies make money and how they can uh, shift over time. But I don't think it's that hard, actually. I think every everyone gets so close to everything that um, and everything becomes so quick and so urgent that I think we sort of focus very much on the details. And, and life almost becomes a fractal where the more you look at details, the more detail there is. And I think it's just incumbent on everyone at every level in any role in a company, just uh, take one day a month, just uh, walk around and observe and listen and absorb and ponder, you know, read widely, read an architecture magazine about how um, design of the home is changing. Read a, a neuroscience magazine about the way that people store information in their brain. You know, just just try and sort of absorb it all, I think. The one of the reasons I'm sort of interested in in your perspective on specifically Blockbuster, but I'll paint you a, a real world scenario for myself. So I run a video interviewing startup and yeah. I have for the last five, this like, I do not come from talent acquisition and probably the dumbest person in the space, but I have taken my business that was like idea in a napkin five years ago, walked into a company, pitched the idea and heard people say, that's the way of the future. That's wonderful. Like, oh my goodness, the technology's great. We're just not there yet. Like we see this going the way we see this going sort of thing. And then for example, COVID hit. And those companies were coming back to us saying, we need the solution because we don't know how to fix our current problem. Now, whether we were a fit or not. And it was just interesting. The thought process went through my head is I'm not offended that people said no to our product. But the interesting thought process was, 
whether they were being kind or not, they sat there and openly acknowledged that this is the way things are going, but they're also not able right now to move to make that happen. Do you see that happening in the world frequently? I mean, is that, are there people who are actually acknowledging the way things are going and they're just not willing or able or interested in making that change? Um, I mean, basically. Does that question make sense? There's kind of a loaded story to that, but. <laughs> You're mainly we're trying to get therapy. Um, yeah, exactly. I'm trying to get cheap consulting on how to be a better salesman. So, <laughs> My entire world um, exists um, in a manner where everyone I ever speak to is basically people who sort of know that what I say is correct and know that the advice I give is good, but are not really that happy to change things. Um, and I think one just needs to be quite empathetic about these people and understand what's really going on, because many people are trying to keep their jobs and, and most people keep their jobs by not being noticed um, rather than by being people that that sort of uh, revolutionize a place. So um, more often than not, it's about finding out people's motivations for change. And it's not really about the role that people have. It's much more about the attitude that people have towards their career. But no, I mean, I've, I've invented sort of three dimensional mobile ad units, which were sort of groundbreakingly exciting. Um, and I tried to to sell them into various places and it was impossible because people would measure um, how they would perform against sort of metrics, which don't really make sense for that kind of product. So we're very good at, at having a sort of factory line and replacing cogs in it, but we're very, very poor at rethinking what a factory line production line should look like. So I'm not, I'm not surprised by that. And, um, you know, one, one learns that there are two ways to do consulting, really. One is that you solve existing problems better. Um, and that's a really, really easy consulting model because problems have budgets assigned to them and people have time for, for, for problems. Um, and the other form of consulting, which is much more exciting, is to be looking at all the things that are now possible um, and then to sort of proactively get people to change things. Um, so that would have been where blockbusters should have been. Like if they were looking at problems, then the problem was that the... Um, the shelving was too wide and expensive. If they were looking at opportunities and possibilities, they would be looking at how the internet could have completely changed their model. Um, but it's very hard to do things that are proactive. It's very hard to do things that require risk. It's very hard to do things that need leaps of faith. Um, and therefore, one just needs to sort of be mindful of that as you're having these conversations. I think I teed this up a little bit in our emailing back and forth, but that, that leads me to the question around the mental exercise of being a true data-driven company, meaning the data indicates a problem that exists and therefore we begin to make slight iterations to solve the problem. And then the very far other side of that is innovative, totally new ideas, throw 10 ideas out, hope one sticks sort of concept. Yeah. How do in your world those two things not interact together and completely interact together? Um, I actually think this is one of the very easy tensions to resolve. Um, this idea that things are data-driven, I think, is absolute nonsense. Like, um, data exists because someone has decided to measure it, and someone has a spreadsheet where it gathers. And that means that someone was interested in that. That means that someone had a hypothesis about that. So before the data even existed, there was a sort of need to collect it, and there was a agenda of some sort. Like data is a wonderful way to um, support decisions. Um, so when you have an incredible world of really rich data, um, it allows you to sort of test theories that you have. But it's not driven by data, it's supported by data. Um, so what we really need in the world right now is to accept that 
um, you don't find insights in data. Um, you uh, validate hypotheses in data. So everything should be very, very human-led. Everything should be very customer-led. Everything should be very business model-led. Um, and then you should look in the data um, to see if it's really something that exists, if it makes sense. But also be aware that there's no data to support behaviors that don't exist yet. Like no one before Red Bull was saying, I'd really like this kind of drink to be a bit more expensive, to be a disgusting taste, to be a disgusting um, sort of uh, color, and for it to be an energy drink that doesn't exist yet. Um, no one before Dyson sort of thought that they wanted to pay a lot more money to have a bagless vacuum. No one before Tesla wanted to have a, a car that you had to charge up. No one before the iPhone um, wanted to have a touchscreen phone. So um, data does a very good job of sort of incremental decisions within a current paradigm, but it does a terrible job of making a business case for things that haven't been done. So do you think sort of the world exists in the sense that it takes a certain type of person to be the Dyson or the Tesla or the... Yeah, absolutely. And that's why when you look at the, the companies that um, really have made a difference, um, they're normally sort of led by some sort of slight sociopath. Um, and I don't mean that and to sort of sound too critical, but you have to be quite... I take it as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be quite strange. I mean, if you're, um, you know, if you're someone that, that set up Dyson, I mean, you probably could have had a really nice career you know, in many industrial design firms. Like if you're sort of Elon Musk, you could have quite easily sort of retired after getting a few um, million for Stripe or whatever the company was that you set up. Um, and I think it, it takes someone that's unreasonable, actually. And there's that sort of lovely quote, I think, what was it? Was it George Bernard Shaw about the unreasonable person, the unreasonable man? I think, um, you know, most of the most people are very reasonable. They're very sort of good at compromise and they're very... Um, measured and actually a lot of progress comes from happening people who are just complete psychopaths and they you know sort of uh, have a complete panic attack if something's not good enough and they're relentlessly demanding and I think I think sometimes you don't realize that actually, I, I work in a lot of innovation sessions and I think people think that innovation should be this really gentle pleasant sort of creative feeling sort of Friday afternoon sort of happy vibe Actually, like that's how you get post-it notes with ideas that are completely benign. Um, that's how you get sort of ideas that pass through everyone's smell test because they're not very scary. If you really want to innovate, it's got nothing to do with post-it notes. It's got nothing to do with um, workshops. Like innovation is someone sort of um, smashing down the door of the CEO's office, you know, late on a on a Friday night, just saying, look, I can't get time in with your EA. Like, please listen to me. You know, it's someone sort of attacking someone at a AGM by saying, look, here's a deck I've got on an idea that's going to be amazing. Like innovation should be pretty unpleasant. It should be quite um, full of anxiety and angst and energy. But I think um, we're not really used to that. We want it to be too sanitized. Do you think the current uh, when people think innovation, you know, they may default to startup, they may default to venture capitalists, they may default to sort of what's sexy right now. Do you think in a harsh generalization, worse, <laughs> it's it's a it's a bit like the sticky note model of, oh, I want to run a startup, therefore I'm going to come up with something that's a reasonably good enough of an idea, get a bunch of pats on the back, justify it by data go raise some money that I did all those different things and then either fail or exit to somebody who, you know, whatever we prove point. Do you believe that, you know, currently the, the, the hub for startup venture capital is too polite <laughs> for lack of better terms? 
Um, yeah, I actually think it's too boring would be my main problem. So um, I think somehow, I mean, I don't want to sound too critical because the reality is that I have quite a nice, comfy life. So who am I to sort of judge these people? But but many companies seem to be set up not based on this wildly good idea, but based on a sort of iteration of models that have got funding before. So everyone knows that, you know, uh, monthly subscription boxes are great. Everyone knows that, um, I know women are perhaps an underserved market. Everyone knows that, you know, people like dogs. Uh, everyone knows that chatbots are good. You know, so you end up with some sort of uh, matrix-like innovation model where someone will create a monthly subscription box for women aimed to serve their dogs better and use some sort of text interface or something. Everything feels very um, sort of uh, based on on these sort of predictable formulas because they know they can get funding. Um, and then that means that it becomes quite risk averse for them. That means that the VC companies are quite easy, quite happy because they can quite easily predict how much it might be worth if they get users. And then big companies then sort of get seduced into buying these little companies because the idea is that they don't know how to do that. And it also works quite well for their financing as well, because it's much easier for them to spend a billion dollars to acquire something that's worth a billion dollars on their bottom line, because it looks like they didn't really spend the money. They just sort of bought an asset. Um, and I think what that leads to is just a, sort of a world that, where nothing's really is that interesting. I mean, until a few months ago, there were no real apps that I downloaded um, that were new um, for about five years. Um, you tend to sort of find these models spring up and everyone copies them. So a while ago, it was e-scooters. Um, sort of before that, it was bike dockless bikes. Like, uh, like all of a sudden, everything seems very sort of generic and, and similar. And I think probably um, one would hope the next era um is in just a bit more sort of wildness a bit more um consumer led innovation rather than sort of business model led innovation is it, uh a little pushback uh, well mm, kind That's of right. um, how can we live in a consumer led world where most consumers don't know like genuinely what the hell they want because we are people um, so I think customers or consumers, they, they struggle perhaps to articulate what they want, but we know sort of human needs. So we know basically that, you know, everything from shelter to food, to saving time, to status, to connection, to meaning, to fun, to sex. You know, we kind of know the main levers that there are within a human. Um, so I think just as a person, we should all have a fairly innate sense of, of what is a good idea and what's not. Um, and I think just there are certain people who are creative and they they sort of uh, link the dots together. Um, and there are interesting forms of innovation because I think normally great ideas happen when you have a really profound understanding of how people are now. You have a really profound understanding of need need states, which are perhaps unmet. And then normally there's some sort of technology that then becomes a bit of a trigger um, I was in a, it was called a Sonder. I don't know how sort of global this company is, but it's basically like a sort of Airbnb meets a sort of hotel room where they're all kind of the same and they're all cleaned very nicely. Um, and in order to access it, you use a smart lock. And I was just thinking, actually, this whole sort of business model really works because of the smart lock. Like it would like without the smart lock, you'd have needed a human being to be there or some sort of weird key thing that would have been a bit awkward and someone might have walked off with it. And then immediately all your profit margin goes. But actually, when you have a smart lock, it means that you can 
um, commit to precise times that people can enter the property. You can charge them based on precisely how long they were in the property. You can arrange to have cleaning staff that go there automatically. And it's very, very boring. But one wouldn't have imagined that a smart lock would be the thing that could unlock quite an interesting business model like that. And I think that, that's a kind of good example of all these three things coming together. I'm going to totally switch gears for a second, okay? Yeah, yeah. I don't really care to talk about COVID because I feel like it's just an exhausted topic. However, the one question I do want to ask related to it, that aside from the actual disease itself, aside from the actual pain and death that it caused, what insight into the world do you think this pandemic, not only literally pandemic as far as a disease, but pandemic as far as widespread reaction What do you think it exposed in a positive way and a negative way? For example, for me, it showed how basically fragile so much of society is and how quickly we default to being concerned, can't make many decisions. The default is to, well, we don't know, therefore we shouldn't do anything yet or anything like that. That's sort of what it gave me some interesting insight to. Um, So I'd love to hear a little bit of your perspective on that. Um, I mean, maybe this sounds a little bit sort of smug or arrogant, but I think many of the things that I saw were not really that surprising to me. Like it was, it was always obvious to me that Instagram culture was kind of grinding people down and people who were sort of showing off were irritating people and that therefore this would be a chance for people to sort of regain their humanity. Like it always struck me that this would be a time where people sort of retrench back to slightly more authentic and sort of almost stoic roots where they start baking bread and they start reading books. Like that for me was always sort of quite obviously going to happen because I think there was this sense that life had got a bit too frenetic and everyone was jet lagged and um, sort of buying champagne to show off to each other. So most most elements were quite um, easy to predict, I think. Um, the thing that has um, been revealed to me which is quite surprising and this borders on sort of conspiracy theory stuff so i'd have to be quite gentle but i'm amazed at at the degree to which all the news ever conveyed was very negative um like actually from the earliest moments of this virus becoming a big deal and being discovered to be very deadly um after the initial projections every single form of data that we ever got um was relentlessly positive like the the case fertility rate kept on coming down the r naught number kept on coming down like the um the concerns about immunity um ended up not being true the concerns that this might spread to animals or that kids might have it ended up not being true and in a in a period of time where we've only ever had good news the media has consisted of uh, relentlessly negative articles And I think I didn't really expect that to happen. I didn't really expect there to be mass anxiety. I didn't really expect people to be okay with having their rights taken away from them. So it was was those elements that have surprised me in a sort of negative way. Do you believe in like the herd versus or the sheep versus lion? What is it? The herd versus lion mentality? Do you believe that that came to be true? Um, I think what we have is an environment where algorithms are so pervasive that people don't even really have a fair chance to see sort of quote unquote, the, the real reality. Um, so I think, I think people are more sheep like than I thought, but I also think that the way that we consume media is now so dictated by what appears to be sparking and what appears to be popular that it's almost, um, there's sort of two things that become almost, um, 
like uh, inevitable. One is that people end up sort of consuming quite similar stuff because what ends up being popular is popular. Um, two is it drives people towards sort of anxiety and fear because those are the main drivers of media that that sort of work and and get views. Um, but then it also leads, and this is sort of somewhat contradictory, um, to sort of extremism. So you tend to have people that think this is all a complete hoax and doesn't exist. And then you have other people that think this is the worst thing ever. And every single bad news story isn't even bad enough. Um, and I think those are things that we have to be really careful about, because what we really need in the future is people to form a consensus in a positive way um, and not to sort of fight each other in a very divided world. If you were to step up on stage in a Q&A and somebody were to ask you something that you've never been asked before, but you've always wanted them to ask you, what would that be? <laughs> My God, I love questions, Essie. So there are loads of things I'd really like to talk about. I'd love to talk about architecture and the sort of future of design. I'd love to talk about um, what would happen if we rebuilt cities from scratch today. I'd love to talk about um, the assumptions that we make about the way that we live our lives and how you know, often we become sort of boxed in by assumptions that don't need to be there. Um, I am sort of on the edge of writing a book, which I've been on the edge of writing for about two years. I heard you uh, I heard you say, don't write a book. If you ever think about it, don't write one. Yeah, so that's what I'm not doing, because I mean, I've obviously written one book now, and it was really hard to write, to be honest. It's a very painful process. It's like being sort of pregnant in your brain. Um, <laughs> but I have this very strong passion that... that um, you know, the first step to a technology is that we um, we sort of let it into our lives um, slowly and then gradually we start to sort of use it to lubricate what we've always done. And then sometimes the technology you get to a point where you start rethinking what a process or what a workflow or what a company should be like around that technology. And um, ironically, this sort of book was almost sort of prescient without me being smart enough to predict this. But I've always thought it's weird that, you know, we do tend to work in the same buildings at the same time as each other um, because that's how we've always worked. And actually, there's no real reason to check your emails in, a, in an office when you could check it on a train or in the middle of a field. I've always felt it was weird that somehow we assumed everyone should have a university education to, to be considered a valuable person in a job. Um, I've always felt it was weird that we would assume that we should sort of buy one house if 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 we can afford and then we should sort of own that house and then maybe we should try and get a bigger house as we get more money. Um, we should always try and aim to have a garden because that's what kids have to have. And it, it sort of um, it hits me that so much of our life becomes really boxed in by these feelings because all of a sudden people have to own a house with a garden within a commutable distance and then they have to have a big mortgage and then they have to have a full time job. You know, and, and none of these things are really true. Like, why, why are all jobs sort of 45 hours-ish per week? Like, why, why are they not jobs that are 23 hours a week or, or four hours a week or, or 45 hours for one week and then nothing for two weeks and then another 45? Like, there's no real reason for many of these criteria. Um, so my book is or was going to be about all of the things that we can rethink in our lives. Because actually, if we use imagination, if we work around what's really important to us, we probably live very different lives to what we do. I've, I'm sort of going through this odd self-reflection. So I'm currently spending yeah. on some weeks like 20 hours on my startup and on some weeks 125 hours on my startup. Oh. And yeah. it's just inflection based upon need, time, when it requires effort, when it's, you know, a uh, call on the golf course or taking a walk or smoking a cigar versus, you know, I need to have really, really concentrated period of time. And then I also, 
long story short, launching another company, which we'll take offline and chat about and have this podcast. And I have weeks where I have complete, like everything in my life is completely pretty much flexible and I have the freedom to pick and choose. Now that doesn't mean I don't have to spend tons and tons and tons of time, but then I stop and see so many people who are confined to the commute that they have to get into work. Obviously COVID changed some of that, but for the most part, commute that they have to get into work, the 40 hours a week that they have to work in order to check the boxes to get what they need. And to me, it seems like most people in some sense aren't able, like wouldn't necessarily love the true freedom. And I think COVID's identified that of like having really nothing on the schedule, but needing to get work done. I don't think people actually like that as much as they think, but at the same time, like people are so confused or challenged or hate this confinement of wake up at, you know, seven, be on the road by eight, work to nine, repeat by home by six. And you live your life for for 30 years. You might do different things in that time, but it seems like that's such a unique problem that people don't know what to do with you're absolutely right and i think um you know there is a a perfect amount of freedom because if you have way too much freedom you end up being kind of lost because you need to have things to anchor around like if you said to somebody you know you're not going to have kids bad luck about that um you're never going to adopt you know bad luck about that um, you can have as much money as you want in the world. You can live in any country in the world. You can work in any field. I think people would just be so sort of paralyzed um, that they wouldn't know where to start. So you need to have some constraints. So whether it's that you've got a passport that only allows you to uh, work in one or two countries, whether it's that you have um, a sort of life partner that you know has fallen in love with um, the Grand Canyon and insists on living near there you know you kind of need one or two things that that sort of provides um, a sort of uh, a jigsaw puzzle you know sort of provides the sort of edges of the puzzle um, and then everyone is then free to to sort of fill it in in their own way but I think ev- everyone needs to find their ultimate level of freedom and I think what actually has happened is that people are quite happy to live the lives they are so lots of people are quite happy to wake up at at 5.37 every day and get the 6.23 train into London. Um, And what COVID will do is actually very interesting, is it allows people to see how their lives could be different. And actually, I think what we'll we'll end up realising is that we ended up where we were because of free will, generally. Um, And actually, we quite liked going into offices and actually we quite liked sort of the feeling of ownership of a property. And we quite like having a summer holiday that's planned for the same two weeks to go to the same uh, villa complex in Marbella every year. Like We we quite like the things that we've chosen. But what I like now is that at least we have a chance to think that. And I think the more that people can grow up without this assumption that you should work until you're 60, whatever, and then retire, um, the more that people grow up without the assumption that they have to spend vast amounts of money on a university education, the more people realize that perhaps they don't need to own a car, like the more people realize that perhaps they could um, be a bit nomadic at periods in their life, or they could work harder and make more money early on and then decide to take it easy. The more the more that people have uh, sort of grew up with those muscles being exercised, the more that people can find their, their real form of, of life, I think. As you're as you were saying this, I was sort of thinking through the the concept of so much of your work and thought is you know as you mentioned to observing and putting yourself in different scenarios to have better understanding whether it's reading something that you may not necessarily have interest to in or to but you read with a context of understanding different perspective that side of things. How do you like make 
so much of your world is designed around thinking and questions. How do you turn that into like work? Um, <laughs> let, me, let me, let me, how do you, how do you say, okay, today I'm going to think. And do you just, do you have sort of intentional structure in your day for that? Or is it literally just let yourself free flow, let the thoughts, the, the different ideas take shape or how, how, how's the sort of manifestation of that? Yeah, it's a very good question and not one. What an odd question. I don't even know what I asked, but I think you got it, right? <laughs> so what did, you ask, what did you ask Tom today? Honestly, I don't really know, but he seemed to get it. So <laughs> He said some things which were useful. Um, it's a very interesting question. I, I mean, I, I'm lucky in that um, many aspects of my life are dictated to me, but not that many. Um, so on a day like today, I probably will have two client calls and they'll have deliverables. And that gives me a bit of structure about what I need to to sort of put into that. Um, but it's probably akin to something. I mean, it sounds a bit pretentious, but probably akin to a bit like creating music where, you know, there is a sort of album that needs to be made. And albums normally are kind of, you know, 10 to 14 tracks. And they tend to be about sort of 60 minutes ish long because that's how long CDs could store music for. Um, and then there's going to be a sort of deadline and there's going to be a sort of a marketing manager that has to sort of approve it. And then there'll be side conversations about the album artwork. Um, and this is the first time I'm using this sort of metaphor, by the way, so maybe it's going to fall down in a minute. But that doesn't mean... Oh, it sounds terrible right off the get-go, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, no, this- it's great. It's great. Yeah. Keep going with it. I like it. Yeah, you have these sort of criteria that you have to meet and these sort of things that fit in and you might have to do a sort of... Um, celebrity sort of handshake or a photo call here or there but most of your time you are kind of jamming with music and that might mean that you're going to other gigs and listening to other music it might mean that you're sort of talking to musicians about um you know what the tribes of africa used to make music it might mean that you're sort of banging things around the house it might mean that you're reading sort of russian poetry um so there's this sort of there's the sort of um the creation of the energy and the ideas and the sort of um fluid thought and then there are the sort of the the sort of uh the hoops that you go through and i think the 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 mixture of the wide and the narrow uh, and the mixture of the fast and the slow and the mixture of, of different elements coming together in different ways and reading different things. It, it all sort of works somehow, I think. You're telling me that all it takes to become a, you know, recognized speaker is read poetry in your house while bumping your <laughs> shin, making some noise. That's what it takes. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I never really get imposter syndrome because I do think what I do seems to be quite useful and people do seem to um, appreciate it and think it's clever. But I also don't feel like I've been ordained with some special gift. Like I, not that anyone asks me, you know, how do they become like me? But I don't, I don't think that, you know, I've, I've not come into this planet with extraordinary language skills and uh, an incredible um, wild imagination. Like I just feel like I'm a sort of normal person with a bit more time perhaps and a good internet connection um, and who doesn't need to earn that much money. Um, and that's all it's taken, really. Questions are very underrated, by the way. I think um, we're, we're very big fans of, of, of answers and solutions and being correct. But actually, um, questions are wonderful. Like n- not knowing things and seeking people's opinions um, is very underrated. I um, Actually, as of this morning, I, I, I made a post that I said, I think we, we could solve most of the world problems if we all just ask more questions. Yeah. Because I, 
I believe that like you want to be smarter, ask questions. You want to learn a skill, ask questions. You want to raise capital, ask questions. Like I'm, I'm a fun, fundamental believer that people don't ask enough questions. Yeah, I'm very um, open questions are good where people can decide to answer it in their own way. And then you often get a lot of information that would never have come out from a more closed question. Um, and questions that really get to what's happening. Like I think um, we're so keen, say, in advertising to get a client brief and a client brief will have the target audience, and it'll have the launch date, and it'll have the uh, media budget and uh, required elements. But I quite like to just find someone like three levels up and just sort of say, so what's going on at the moment? You know, because at that point they'll say, well, actually, you know, we're worried about, you know, the fact that cheaper competition are coming in and we've launched this new product to try and get market share. And actually, we're going to try and raise our average selling price through it. And then I think when you really sort of start doubling down on these things and go, why and why, then you really get to what's really going on. And that's normally a much better place to solve the problem at, because it might be that actually they shouldn't launch that, that product in the first place and they should just chill out a little bit. It might be that they should buy a competitor or it might be that, you know, they should make a, an app or something instead. But, but we tend to be quite reluctant to ask difficult questions because it's quite scary and we presume that people get offended. You also, don't, you also don't tend to get paid to, to ask questions. You get paid to sort of make stuff normally. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I'm doing a podcast uh, where we're diving into a lot of the topics going on with George Floyd stuff. And it's a really, really unique demographic of people who are going to be on it. And it's uh, I, it basically is all people who I feel comfortable with saying, hey, we're going to ask some hard questions. They're going to be challenging. People might get offended. But at the same time, we're not going to hate each other afterwards because we know where each other's coming from. Yeah, intentions really matter, actually. I think um, we have a lot more in common with every person on the planet than we realize. And um, I know I said this before and I sound like a hippie, but, you know, most people, if they sound like an arsehole, they're probably just scared. Um, You know, most people, if they sound intransigent, they're probably just battling themselves into a position because they don't want to think more widely. And, you know, being uh, doubted is what gives them a great sense of fear. And I think if you really understand people's motivations, then these conversations can become de-armed. And we can sort of de-escalate them and we can sort of listen to each other and sort of let ideas flow a bit more. What's the influence you want to have on the world? Um, I'm not sure. I've never really sort of come into this thinking that I want to be influential. Um, so it's kind of odd that there may be a chance that people might listen to me. Um, I think. Okay, let, me, like- let, me, let, me, let me rephrase that slightly then. Yeah. What's the influence you want to have on your world? Um, I'd like people to get better at using imagination and um, a sense of optimism to really create the life that they want to lead. So we should not anymore in 2020 sort of follow easy paths. Um, I think we should really think about what we're about as a person and sort of self-reflect and then create a reality that suits us. And I think when we do that, we might realize that we don't need to... um, be in sort of wanky bars and take pictures to share on Instagram. Um, when we do that, we might not have to work as hard. Um, when we do that, we might have more meaningful conversations with with friends that are really good to us. Um, so I guess that's it. I like it. My last my last question, favorite question on the planet is, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, the internet, really. I'm a, I'm a sort of relentlessly curious person. And um, the internet in many ways has been the worst thing that could have ever happened to me because it's endless. So you never get to finish it. But I just, um, I love learning and consuming information and 
listening to people and seeing people's points of view. So I, I really, really, really enjoy just having like 27 tabs open on my browser. And one is about the hardest airport to land in in the world. And the other thing is about a sort of company full of crazy people and how they work together. And another thing is about a sort of strange flag design that was banned. And, and somehow I just love being in that stuff. Tom, this has been amazing. Is there <laughs> anything else you want to leave the audience with? Um, I mean, it, assuming that people listen to stuff now, it's quite likely that um, we'll return back to sort of normal quite quickly. I think we've all been on a on a holiday where perhaps you took a slightly longer period of time off. And perhaps on the last day of the holiday, you sort of found on a humid night, you were sort of walking arm in arm with your lover or you're in a bar sort of with a book open or you're in some sort of reflective space. And normally in those moments, you you write down three or four things that you're going to do, which in, invariably is you're going to wake up earlier and you're going to go to the gym more and you're going to start having a smoothie for breakfast and you're going to do yoga and meditate. And you write down all these things. And then you sort of get on a plane and go home and it's Monday morning and you were a bit jet lagged. So you can't wake up as early as you want. And within about two days, the sort of tan's worn off and the sand in your shoes has vanished. And you can't really remember that. And the world around you is not really ready for you to be different. And it's not really ready for you to not read your emails at night because that's what's expected of you. And I think this is a rare moment where everyone gets to sort of have that metaphorical life-changing moment where they feel a bit more relaxed and they feel like they can sort of reprogram their life a little bit and what's going to happen is we're going to return to normal very very quickly and i think if there is a way to try and write these things down properly and if there is a way to sort of share them with other people and hold people to account to them then i think that would be a really nice thing to come from this and it, it doesn't mean that we're all going to move to Peru and start an alpaca farm but it might mean that we decide to phone our parents a bit more often or it might mean that we decide that you know we could afford a slightly smaller house and then to sort of spare send sort of uh, save money and spend it on things that are a bit more meaningful or something like so I think now is a really good time to reflect and to write down because normality is going to come back really quickly I love it I love it well Tom this has been fantastic thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast been good fun. Thanks, Matt.